0: We are looking at becoming true worshipers. I think um, you're here today because you want to encounter God. There's a hunger in your life. And when we talk about worship, we think about what we're looking for when we come. But we're learning that's not where true worship begins. And when we do that we make it about our needs, our expectations, our style, our, our particular tastes, then we're the object of our worship. In fact, worship is, the doctrinal term is theocentric, it's, it's God-centered, and what we're doing is we begin this journey of worship, which we're going to look at all fall, which I hope will revolutionize our idea about worship, but also revolutionize us in the process, is that worship is only possible because of who God is and what he has done in reaching out to us. So in that sense, our reaching to God is the response of a God who created worship, who is the object of worship, and actually has his own expectations of what worship is. And so the first question we need to ask isn't, what are people looking for? And and as much as we love all of you and want to see God meet your needs and meet you where you are today, we would be failing you by asking primarily on Sunday morning, what are you looking for? When we gather for worship, the first question is, what is God looking for? What does God want us to know? And then let's let that inform how we come into His presence, how we look at our needs, how we bring our needs to Him. The first week we looked at this big idea, let's say it together, true worship is by God and for God. The key verse we looked at was from Romans chapter 11, say this with me, everything comes from Him and exists by His power and is intended for His glory, all glory to Him forever, amen. Last week we introduced idea number two, which we're going to continue to develop today, say this with me. It's not enough to worship the God that we know. We must know the God that we are to worship. We looked in Jeremiah chapter 9, and we saw the contrast between the things that inspire our worship that God says that that's really not what we glory in, as opposed to what God wants to inspire our worship. And let's say this together. This is what the Lord says Let not the wise boast in their wisdom, or the strong boast in their strength, or the rich boast in their riches. But let the one who boasts boast about this that they understand and know me that I am the Lord who exercises kindness, justice, and righteousness on the earth. For in these I delight, declares the Lord. In other words, in these I receive worship. People who get that it's not just about God being good to me. Remember the the big phrase that stuck with me last week was, God isn't good just because he's good to us. He's just good. And when we worship God based on his provision, our wisdom, our knowledge, our physical health and vitality, our strength, Our well-being, our riches. When we worship God just based on what He provides for us, two things happen. First of all, our worship disappears when those things disappear. And of course they do. If you've lived long enough, you recognize that. Those things fail. If you haven't lived long enough to experience that, just wait. (laughs) They go away. And when we worship God based on that, so does our worship. And here's the other thing. You will worship whatever meets those things in your life. And as a Christian, you will even shape your ideas of God around those needs when those needs are the basis for your worship. God says, that's not what it is. Don't boast, which is a word for worship in Hebrew. It actually means glory in. But glory in this, that you understand and know me. So at the beginning of all true worship, is letting God be God. So here's the question I want to ask. How do you know you have the right picture of God? If it's not enough just to worship the God you know, we're supposed to know the God who is and is to be worshipped. How do you know you have the right picture of, of that God? Well, what if we had show and tell this morning, just like in grade school, where you bring up your idea of God and you share it with the class? We have God show and tell. What would that look like? If we were to do that today, well, I'm going to read you a story so that we can observe this safely on our high horses and listen to it. This was written by um, a man named John Duckworth, published 1987 in a series of modern day parables. I think a meeting like that would go something like this. Excitement filled the meeting hall as folks found their seats. Oh, I love these get-togethers, bubbled a woman to her friend who sat nearby. They're always so, so inspirational. Absolutely, agreed her friend. I just don't know what I'd do without them, or without him, of course. She nodded reverently toward the small cardboard box that sat beside her on the bench. i bring him with me wherever I go, you know. He makes me feel so... So safe. I know what you mean, said the first woman, bringing a little flowered metal tin from her purse. Just knowing he's there all snug in this box makes me so happy to be a box holder. <laughs> when I think back to the old days before I even knew you could have him in a box, why, I don't know how I managed to keep going. My thoughts exactly, said her friend, patting the carton at her side. Until I started coming here, I had no idea what he might be like. That's why it's so good to attend these meetings. We can learn so much from each other, don't you think? No doubt about it, the first woman said. Why, it's so interesting, to." She stopped as the organ music began. (laughs) Oh, here we go. I can just feel my heart beating a mile a minute. Tonight's a sharing time, and and that always makes me a little nervous. Now, now, whispered her friend. Don't forget, he's right there with you. She pointed at the carton on the bench. Y- yours is a friendly one, isn't he? I mean, he helps you when you're worried and all that. Well, of course, the lady said. I wouldn't want one of those other ones. Why, I knew a man who had one who, shh, interrupted an elderly gentleman from the bench behind her. You're disturbing him. He patted the wooden box that sat on his lap. He's very sensitive. Besides, the meeting is starting. Sure enough, the organ music reached a crescendo at that very moment. The audience held its breath suddenly. A dapper young man entered from the wings, flashed a brilliant smile, and took his place at the center of the platform. Good evening, he said. So nice to see you all here tonight, and so nice to see so many wonderful boxes. He paused, his face growing somber. You know, friends, we are so blessed. Some folks don't even know about, well, about him. They don't know you can tuck him away all safe and snug in your own personal container. Let's take a moment to thank him, shall we? All over the auditorium, people turned to their boxes, small boxes, big boxes, metal, wood, cardboard boxes, and gave them an affectionate pat. The young man in front took a sleek leather case from his suit pocket and gave it a, a heartfelt wink. Such a blessing. He said huskily and stuffed the case back into his pocket. And then he smiled again. Hey, let's get this show on the road. As you all know, one of the great things about getting together is sharing with each other about what's in your boxes, or rather, who's in them. So tonight, I'm going to pick a few of you at random to come right up here and tell us about the boxes you've brought. Nervous whispers ran up and down the aisles as the young man scanned the audience. Let's see. How about this lady here here in the third row, the one with the blue dress? Come on up. Giggling, a, a plump woman squeezed past the others in her row and made her way to the front. She was carrying a, a schoolgirl's lunchbox that had pretty pink flowers on the side. Oh, I'm so excited, she said. <laughs> When she reached the platform, "'I've always wanted to get up here and tell everyone about, "'well, about you-know-who.' "'Well, here's your chance,' the young man offered, beaming. "'Tell us about the box you've brought.' "'She held it up for all to see. "'I keep him in a lunchbox,' she explained, "'to remind me of how he gives me everything my heart desires.' "'Very good,' the young man said. "'Does he give you anything else besides, like, food?' Oh my, yes, he showers down cars and boats and houses and and nice clothes and good health and home computers and tax shelters. (laughs) I see, the young man said with a chuckle. Sounds like you've really got him in a box, all right. I sure do. It's so comforting to know he's there. He's doing such a good job that one of these days I may even trade in this lunchbox for a nice roomy Picnic basket. Now that's a thoughtful idea, the young man approved. I'm sure he'll appreciate that. Thanks so much for sharing. Why don't you go back to your seat? I'll look for the next box holder. The woman returned to her seat as the young man scanned the audience again. How how about this man? He pointed toward the back, last seat on the right. Me? Came a nervous voice from the audience. "'Yes, you. Come right up here and tell us about your box.' "'Well, all right,' said the man reluctantly, getting up and shuffling down the aisle. In his arms, he cradled a large cardboard carton, which he kept glancing at anxiously. "'That's it,' the young man soothed. "'Just come right up here. No need to be frightened.' That's what you think, the man quavered, watching his box as if it might explode at any second. When he finally made it to the front, he was literally shaking. Now, said the young man, that wasn't so bad, was it? (laughs) Not yet, the man stammered. But it could happen at any time, you know. Uh, What might happen at any time? He could get mad. The man worried, peering at the box. I never know when he might jump out and punish me. It hasn't happened yet, but when I least expected, he could decide to hit me with a lightning bolt or disease or something. The young man frowned at the box. So why why would he want to do that? Because he... He's like a policeman, yeah. He's always watching me, waiting for me to do something wrong. I, I can just feel him getting angry with me. I always do something wrong because I'm such a bad person, and he's out to get me, and... and ah! The screaming man leaped from the platform, ran down the aisle, and was gone. Well, continued the young man brightly after a pause. As I always say, to thine own box be true, let's try another box holder. How about you, ma'am, on the aisle? You look like you have something or someone to show us. I certainly do, said an attractive woman who came forward with a mirrored compact. I just want to say that I've kept you-know-who in this box for years, and he would never do anything to harm or upset me. We're, we're the best of friends. It's such an encouragement to know that he wouldn't dare irritate or contradict me. <laughs> I, I know that's been true in my own life, the young man agreed earnestly. Many in the audience nodded. What would you say is the secret of getting along so well with him? The woman thought for a moment. I think, she finally responded, It's the fact that he's growing to be more and more like me every day. (laughs) Whenever I want to remind myself of what he's like, I just glance in the mirror in this compact and (laughs) there he is. The young man sighed knowingly and nodded. What a sweet and precious truth. Thank you so much for sharing Well, friends, let's have another box holder come up and tell us what's in. Stop! Yelled an angry voice from the back of the room. I won't hear another word of this. Not another word. The speaker, a stern, middle-aged man, came marching up the aisle, dragging a huge filing cabinet behind him. I've listened to this heresy long enough, he objected. All this nonsense about you know who and putting him in a box. Who do you people think you are? What do you mean? the young man asked, flustered. You obviously have no conception of what he's really like lunch boxes, cartons, and compacts. Indeed, he's much too big for any of those things. He is. That's right, the man said, proudly patting his filing cabinet. It's all right here in my doctrinal statement. He pulled a manila folder from the first drawer, cleared his throat, and began to read. <clears throat> I believe in the pre-tribulational, pre Trinitarian foreknowledge of the dispensational hermeneutics. <laughs> I believe in the substitutionary immersion of sanctification, edification, justification, the omnipresent, omniscient, omnipotent, triune. The young man in the audience listened politely for the next half hour as the man read the entire contents of his filing cabinet. But slowly, almost imperceptibly, a glorious light began to dawn in their eyes. Of course, the young man finally cried when the reader was finished. Why didn't we see this before? We've been so blind. So blind, agreed several in the audience. The man with the file cabinet looked around with a superior air. Well, uh, at least you admit your error. Indeed we do, the young man confessed ruefully. But now we can change thanks to you. He dabbed his eyes again. His face fairly glowed as he turned to the assembled box holders. My friends, he exclaimed, through this man's shining example, we have seen how at last we may be free of our boxes. No longer need we carry these cumbersome containers around. As our visitor has shown, we can leave you-know-who at home in our filing cabinets. (laughs) What? The man blustered. But I... Thank you so much for sharing that life-changing insight, the young man said. My friends, once again our time has flown. Thank you all for being part of this very special evening, and don't forget your boxes. There was another round of applause as the organ music came up. The man with the filing cabinet slowly walked down the aisle, bewildered. I just love these meetings, whispered the woman with the cardboard box at her side. So inspirational, you know? Isn't that the truth, said her friend. She glanced at the little flowered tin in her lap. I think he'll look lovely in my filing cabinet. Don't you? Divine, came the reply. Simply divine. What's inside your box? Because we all have one. Even those of us that have our full systematic theology in place, we can list for you on our ordination paper everything that we need to know about God. Intellectual knowledge is something that's never finished, and relational knowledge is a process. It's a journey. And the minute you think you have God completely figured out, and therefore boxed into some set of parameters, I guarantee that God will disappoint you. So what happens when we encounter the real God and realize the God in our box is not Him? Well, we have a great story of what happens when God actually shows up. It's in Isaiah chapter 6. I invite you to be with me there today. Isaiah chapter 6. We introduced this text last week during our worship time. But today we're going to explore this transformational encounter that Isaiah has that rocks his world, changes him forever, and sets him on a whole new course in his life. Even though prior to this he had already been a prophet of the Lord, devoted to serving God and worshiping God and leading the people of God. This encounter radically changed him, and it begins with these words, I saw the Lord. And everything else that we're going to see flows from there. So let's read the passage first. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, high and exalted, Seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces. With two they they covered their feet. And with two they were flying, and they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook and the temple was filled with smoke. Now, we'll stop there. So the background of this, it's important to pay attention to every part of Scripture. And when it says, in the year that King Uzziah died, for anyone in that period, they know what that meant. King Uzziah was a godly king. During his period, the people experienced the revival of worship. It had been a glorious return to God. But unfortunately, it didn't stay there. At some point, Uzziah took it upon himself to go into the holy place and offer incense to the Lord. Now, let's look at this. He was worshiping. In fact, he was doing something that God had instructed Israel to do. So in one sense, you could say, He's just worshiping and he means well. But the problem was God had reserved that action for priests alone. It was not his role to perform that particular act. He decided, "Eh, I'm going to add my ideas, my wants to my worship. And how important was it to God? that not just those things were done, but they were done correctly, Uzziah is struck instantly with leprosy. He becomes the leper king. He's hidden away in his palace. The whole nation knows it. And he dies a very slow and tragic death. And what we are about to encounter here with Isaiah takes place in that very same chamber in the temple. And so he says, in the year that King Uzziah died, this was a pivotal transformational year for the people of Israel. Isaiah is a prophet of God. I I think he's struggling with what is it that God wants to say. And he's struggling with what happened to Uzziah, who he believed loved the Lord, but yet one slip and tragedy befalls him even in the house of God, even in an act of, of worship. And it's in this setting, in this place, that Isaiah says, I saw the Lord. And what he means by that is, I saw the God who is God. God in a way that he had never seen Him before. The heavens open and the throne of God descends from heaven and we see this amazing description. I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne and the train of His robe filled The temple. Let's just look at what this says to us. First of all, I saw the Lord. I saw Him in a way that's outside of my box, my understanding, my experience of Him. I saw God in a way I have never seen Him before. My eyes have seen the Lord Almighty. I saw the Lord. And I didn't see Him as my buddy, I saw Him as high and exalted. I saw Him as high and above all things. I saw Him large and in charge of the very universe. He was seated on the throne of creation. And the train of His robe fills the temple, lets you understand that when God shows up, there isn't room for anything else. He fills all the available space when He shows up. That's the God that we worship. He also sees creatures around the throne. Seraphim. It's the only time that term is used in the Bible. But they clearly are the very same creatures that John sees in the book of Revelation. They were flying around and they were saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is filled with his glory. Now, think about this. In fact, Let's go to Revelation chapter 4 just real quick. The last book in the Bible, John's vision of heaven and of the things to come. Chapter 4 beginning at verse 1. After this I looked and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And the voice I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here. And I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. We're going to pick up at verse uh, middle of verse 6. In the center around the throne were four living creatures. They were covered with eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion. The second was like an ox. The third had the face of a man. And the fourth was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under its wings, day and night, they never stopped saying holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. We talked about this last week, but let's dive into it one more time because it's just so rich. I want you to picture this. Isaiah and John, separated by centuries, witness something that is still happening right now around the throne of God. That God created creatures, they are the closest thing to Him physically, and they serve one purpose, and that is to sing a song that God wrote about Himself. Think about that. Now, if we were writing a, a song about God, and we were only allowed to use one word to describe Him, the way our culture describes God is love. Right? That's how we think about it. And it's not that God isn't love. Of course He's love. But you can only really appreciate God's love if you understand His holiness. <laughs> then you get His love. And it says in Revelations 4, these creatures are forever singing it. You know what that means? It's number one on God's worship playlist. That's what it means. <laughs> and as far as we know, there's two stanzas. Isaiah heard verse 1. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is filled with his glory. John heard verse 2. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty who was and is and is to come. Now the last time I checked, that's only four lines. So I want to talk to all you hymn-only people who think that somehow God likes hymns more because they got more content in them. Think about this. The song that God wrote is four lines that they were singing 4,000 years ago and and they're still singing now. Get that. (laughs) Holy, holy, holy. Now, what does it do to Isaiah when his idea of God is shattered by a vision of the God who is? Now we're going to read on in Isaiah 6. Verse 5, first words out of his mouth. Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. And then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken from tongues from the altar. With it, he touched my mouth and said, See? This has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, Here am I. Send me. And he said, Go. Now we're going to stop there and look at the transformational Experience that occurs with us whenever we encounter the God who really is. And I want to suggest that in some sense, this ought to be what happens every time we gather for worship, but it also is how your life ought to flow in your pursuit of understanding and knowing God. Let's break it down. The first response that Isaiah has is conviction woe is me i think eugene peterson paraphrases that in the message oh crap i'm pretty sure he does you know this is bad the first thing is conviction you know conviction is good we confuse conviction with guilt we don't want to feel bad about our sins let me, let me help you understand. You will never be able to worship God. You'll never be able to be in relationship with Him if you're unable to say, woe is me. If you're unable to see who you are in the light of who God really is. Woe is me. Conviction is the act of a loving God in helping us get rid of those things in our life that keep us from becoming true worshipers, that thing for which We were singularly created. Conviction. Guilt. Well, that's another thing. Guilt is from Satan. Conviction is from God. Guilt is out of hatred towards us. Conviction is out of love. Guilt wants you to feel defeated. Conviction wants you to embrace God's grace. Guilt has as its goal that you will give up, that your faith will be destroyed. Conviction has as its goal that you will become whole and cleansed. We have to see the God who is. In other words, we will never see our sin for what it is. And that's why there are people in the church today that are living their life in one way. They're living in sin. They have secret sins of pornography and other things, or they're having affairs, or they're having sexual relationships outside of marriage. I mean, just think about all the little different things. And I know I'm sounding like a radical conservative here, but you know why? I saw the Lord. And I'm going to tell you, if you think you're worshiping well and you're living in disobedience, you're worshiping a God in your box, not the God who is. I didn't plan that, but I think the Holy Spirit's kicking in right now. So I'm going to go with it. Holy, holy, oh my gosh. Conviction. And that leads to confession. I am a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips. Not only does he own his own sin, but the sin of the people of God. He confesses on the whole. And that leads to cleansing, which is only possible through the conviction and confession when it says the angel took a coal from the altar and touched his lips, The altar is the foreshadowing of the sacrifice of the true Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. The death of the Lamb was what made possible the forgiveness of sin. And so in taking that call from the altar, symbolically, the angel of the Lord is saying the blood of the Lamb cleanses you. Your sin has been atoned for and has been forgiven. You have been cleansed. When I begin my worship of God by letting God be God, I see myself for who I am. And I am compelled, but even more, I feel safe enough to admit who I am. Because I know that this same holy God is quick to forgive, quick to offer mercy, that He has made a way for me to be forgiven. And that cleansing is what makes me able to worship. And after that, there's the calling of God. Now having done the work in his heart, God says, who will I send? Who will go for us? That's the calling. And how does Isaiah respond? That's the commitment. Here am I, send me. How amazing that he moves from, woe is me, I'm ruined, to Use me. Why? Because he's been fully transformed by this vision and he's been forgiven even though he knows on his own he could not stand before a holy God. That same holy God has made it possible for him to stand before him to be cleansed. His lips are clean. He can offer praise to God. He can be the voice of God. And he gets it. And then finally we have the commissioning. God says, so go. Wouldn't that be an amazing worship experience every single week we get together There's a loving God who reveals more and more about who he is, shows us a mirror of ourselves as a result, and we learn an area that God wants to work in, and then we confess that, and God brings renewal, and then there's a commitment of our calling, and we go out filled with joy that we can serve him. Wouldn't that be awesome? And wouldn't that be great if that's what your life, week in and week out, day in and day out was because worship ultimately is not what happens here. Worship is a frame of reference by which we live our lives. Don't you want that? Isn't that what our heart really longs for? Is wholeness and purpose? Isn't that what all of your lists represent? Yeah, it is. And so it's in putting aside our wants, our priorities as our first step to God and letting God be God that the things we need most occur. I'm going to tell you, letting God be God in your life is the best thing you could possibly do for your own well-being. I love that it works out that way. God gets worshipped. We get clean. We get purpose. We get joy. Oh, so good. So good. That's what it should be. Let's let God be God in our presence. It all begins with this statement. Say it with me. I saw the Lord high and exalted.